beautiful that we just had the psalm that we will be preaching through today, looking at today, just sang. I'll quickly read the psalm as an error in my judgment in creating the bulletin with Mark. I did not have it read, but having it sang, let these words sink over you one second time. This is Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you informed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. You bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your works be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. The time we are living in, I don't need to tell you, it's a strange one, is it not? These are strange, strange days. A polarized age where the art of constructive and instructive discourse, it seems to be a lost art. It's just gone. We seem to live in a world, and I feel this acutely, being one that teaches logic, but we seem to live in a world devoid of logic, which makes rational discourse next to impossible. Really hard to argue with somebody who denies the laws of logic. <laughs> and they're out there. We live in an age of emotion rather than reason. And in this age, it would serve us quite well to remember some of the basic principles of logic and also the wonderful worlds, the words of my literary hero, G.K. Chesterton, who succinctly quipped that fallacies do not cease to be fallacies just because they become fashions. Fallacies do not cease to become fallacies just because they become fashions. Those are beautiful words from Chesterton. Just because it is fashionable to think fallaciously does not make it any less fallacious. And one of these fallacies that's become very fashionable these days, a fallacy that we should all be acquainted with, has the Latin name ad novitum. Ad novitum. Ad novitum is a very simple fallacy to understand, and it's even more simple, to fall victim to it, to fall prey to it. And ad novitum is basically the way of thinking that is to believe that whatever is new is true. Whatever is new, it is true. It's to believe that if something is newer, it is necessarily better than whatever came before. And one can see that it's quite easy 
to be lulled into this sort of fallacious way of thinking. Because there are a myriad of instances in our lives every day where indeed the new is actually better than what is old. Right? I have absolutely no doubts that my iPhone 7 is certainly nowhere as good as whatever the newest iteration of the iPhone is now. I don't know what they're up to now, but somewhere in the teens, I believe. And that new iPhone is certainly better than my iPhone 7. I know the televisions that I have in my house today are far superior to the ones that I grew up with as a child. There are lots of instances where the new is indeed better than the old. And because of this, it's easy to fall victim to the fallacy of ad But in reality, those things which are old, not in every instance, but in many instances, are indeed better than what is new. This is the reason that we still have classics departments. Now they're dwindling. But we still have classics departments out there that are reading Homer and Shakespeare. Because there is great, rich value to studying those things which have withstood the test of time. Our text today, Psalm 90, it's a perfect example of ancient wisdom that not only surpasses all of the modern wisdom that has tried to hit on these same topics, but this is an ancient psalm, an ancient hymn, an ancient poem that has withstood the test of time. There have been much, much poetry that has tried to hit on this exact theme, the themes of this poem. But it has not done it with the same grace and grandeur that this poem has. Those themes in Psalm 90, being the fleeting nature of human existence, the wispy, sort of airy, ephemeral blip that makes up our short time inhabiting this rock that is violently flying through space. There's been lots and lots of poetry, lots of ink spilled talking about man's wispy existence. Very few have reached the depths of Psalm 90. Psalm 90, as you saw the, the prefix to it there, it's a prayer of Moses, making it an ancient, ancient psalm. And one of the oldest poems in the history of the world. It's not the oldest poem. You might be familiar with what the oldest poem is in existence. That comes in Genesis chapter 2. Adam's the world's oldest poet, where God's officiating the first ever marriage ceremony, and Adam sees his bride Eve, and he bursts into poetry, the first ever poem. Bone of my bone, finally, flesh of my flesh. That's poetry from Adam right there, right? It's hard for a lot of guys to, uh, to live up to that on their marriage day. See your bride. You know what the first groom did when he saw his bride? Finally! That's the most ancient poem. But this one, being that it's a poem from Moses, one of the few poems that we have in Moses, is one of the most ancient poems in the history of the world. And for that reason and that reason alone, even if it were not the inspired word of God, this would be something of infinite value and worth for us to study. Imagine that the CNN and the Fox News news story would be if we discovered the world's oldest poem. Right? There would be literary articles and people writing PhD dissertations about it for the next 50 years. The oldest poem. And here we have one of them. So, I know personally, when I read the Psalms, it's my habit that my mind immediately drifts into the world of David. You just assume, hey, I'm in the Psalter, this is the world of David. Into the world of Israel's monarchy, into the world, the world of Saul and David, into the world of Uriah and Bathsheba, into that world where sort of the Assyrian destruction of Israel is just out there on the horizon, and the Babylonian captivity of Judah is moving ever closer into the foreground. Right? That's where my mind immediately goes when I'm reading the Psalms. But that's not the original context of this psalm. Here we find ourselves in the world of Moses. 
We are in the world of the Israelites after they have just been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And God has redeemed them, He has saved them, and brought them out of the captive land, the land of great captivity. So in this poem, in this song, we're in the world of wandering. We are also in the world of Israel's remarkable collective amnesia. Right? Israel is redeemed by all of these mighty works and then immediately, ever so quickly, forgets God's power in redeeming them. They quickly begin to grumble. They quickly begin to complain. They quickly forget that they are not yet in Canaan, but God is bringing them there. They quickly forget that God has been their God for all generations. When Moses is used in those words, he's saying, hey, God was not only your God when you were in Egypt, but this is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He's been there. He has been steadfast. But the Israelites forget that quickly. So with our sites situated in the original context, this time of Moses, most likely the time of wandering, we'll examine the text today under two headings. Two headings. The situation in verses 1 through 11, and then the solution in verses 12 through 17. So we have the situation, then the solution. So let's first examine the situation. So in this psalm, our author, Moses, he's dealing with the brevity of life. He is elucidating the harshness of the human condition. He's looking at the rugged, arduous, fleeting nature of our lives, and more particularly, the fleeting nature of the lives of the Israelites who he is leading. You return man to dust, he writes. From dust they were made, and to dust they shall return. Right, just as quickly as the Spirit of God breathed life into the dirt and formed man. Instantaneous. Just as quickly as that happens. The sanctions of sin send man spiraling back into insignificance. They send him spiral, spiraling back into sequestration. Moses continues, You sweep them away as with a flood. Carry downstream. You could fight against the current. And if you fight really hard, Moses says you might swim for 70 years. Maybe, he says, even 80 years you can fight against the current. As the psalm says in verse 10. But nature takes no prisoners. And everyone in that current will be dragged by those rivers. We're going to be pushed down that river. Our dreams and aspirations on one side. Our hopes, our children on the other, passing by like banks of the river. And here we are, dragged down towards our inevitable doom. We are in a tributary that empties us into a sea of death. And if you're lucky, you push 80 years, Moses says. Mind you, this is Moses who lives 120 years. And he still realizes that's nothing. The blip. The psalmist goes on. He says, they are like a dream. Here one moment, gone the next. Dreams, after all, they're hard to hold on to, aren't they? You probably all had those dreams before. You kind of know your dream. Like, I want to stay in this one. This is a good one. But it just fades away. You can't get a grip on them. You can't manage them. And dreams are weird, right? Just like this life that Moses is describing here. Sometimes these things don't make a lot of sense. Life is strange. And it's strange in its harshness. And it's strange in its cruelties. Unrelenting in his desire to drive home the frailty of the human condition. 
the poet goes even further and he adds, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Or anything like me, he spent a lot of time with all this rain that we've had growing, or mowing very, very high grass. Seems like I have to mow my lawn every four days. If I, if I, if I wait a normal week, i got to mow the lawn twice because the grass goes too hot. My grass grows up green, vibrant, strong for a moment, though, in its youth. But then it quickly fades. It dries up and it's blown away. And then it's immediately replaced by new grass that some new homeowner is going to have to cut. Never once while he's cutting that grass is he going to be thinking about the past generations that had to take care of that grass. The grass that is as fragile as the man that is cutting it right now. Just blown away. Here for a blip. Gone. This is a grim, grim, but honest assessment of man's condition. Moses here, because of his forthright nature, because of his honest appraisal of the human condition, he is a great example for leaders. Leaders need to be honest in assessing people's position. And Moses is even a greater example, particularly for leaders of the church. That is to say, ministers, they need to be honest in assessing the situation of their congregants. The pulpit is not a place for soft-pedaling pacifists. The ministry is not a mechanism for ameliorating the sadness of people's lives. It's not a mechanism for making people feel like they're really okay. Right? This hallowed position right here ought not to be hallowed out by men whose preaching consists of tips and life hacks to help their congregants live their best life, to help their congregants be true to themselves, and to help them, you know, with that overwhelming, help them bring out that overwhelming good that is really deep down in them and bring it up to the surface because most of you are overwhelmingly good and you just need to let that goodness shine through to push that little bit of deficiency, that little bit of weakness out of you. And then you can live your true life. And you, you, you'll notice with these preachers, you must always use the words weaknesses and deficiencies that people have. You can never use the word sin. Right? That word's too blunt. It's too archaic. It's unsophisticated. Or at least we're told. But to tell dying men and women that they are fine and that they need no medicine, that is medicinal malpractice. It is an ecclesiastical miscarriage of justice. It's an ecclesiastical miscarriage of your duty as a minister. To tell congregants, and I hear this all the time, I heard it yesterday at a funeral that I was at in another denomination's church. To tell congregants that they themselves are good and have no need to worry is to utterly fail as a leader of the church. It is to steal from. It is to despoil the treasury of Christ's grace. That is what you are doing when you are telling people they are good on their own. Not to mention, this is just a slight aside here. Not to mention, a failure to make men aware of their condition, the fleeting nature of their lives, especially in the fact that they have sinned and offended a holy God. To not mention that is to flat out lie. And Moses, as a good leader, he is no liar. So Moses, fittingly and correctly, he juxtaposes, he sets up here a scale the ephemeral condition of man's life with the eternality, the steadfastness of God. 
That's the scale that Moses wants to set up. Your ephemeral nature, your fleeting life, God's eternality. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting, before time, to everlasting, you are God. Moses wants to highlight the gulf between God and man. Mountains, after all, if you think about mountains, right? they are timeless compared to man. And yet mountains are still bound by time. There, after all, was a time when there were no mountains. Right? The scripture tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade. The mountains were spoken into existence in the beginning by the Word. And the Word was with God because the Word was God. And although grass and mountains will fade away, the Word of the Lord remains forever. Chesterton, once again, in what I consider his masterpiece, my favorite work of his, The Everlasting Man, teaching a book study on this right now with a bunch of young kids at my church. We read it every Monday night for two hours. We just get together in a circle and we read two hours of Chesterton's Everlasting Man. In that work, Chesterton lays out what he calls these four major epochs, these four sort of big bangs that the world has to reckon with, these huge climactic moments of change. Those being, one, the movement from nothing to something. That's wild. How do we get from nothing to something? And then he says the second big one is the movement from something to life. That's another sort of big bang. And then we have the movement from life to man. How do we get from life to man? And then finally, how do we get from man to Christian? Right? Those are the four sort of big bangs, climactic changes where nothing is the same afterwards. C.S. Lewis, always sort of copying Chesterton, never gets the credit for you know, you know that you know everyone knows like the Lewis, the, the famous like three L argument, the liars. That's right in Chesterton's Everlasting Man, which Chesterton writes in like 1908, and Lewis writes that in 1908. But he loved him. He loved him. He never gets the credit that he does. But Lewis adds sort of a fifth epoch here. He says, if you want to do those Chesterton movements, right, from nothing to something, from something to life, from life to man, from man to Christian, Lewis says maybe the biggest transition might be from man to glorified man to transfigured man, to man in glory, whatever that is, right? That's like what the whole purpose of, of Lewis's work, The Great Divorce, is all about. Whatever that transition is, is why. But however you want to number these epochs, these periods, these momentous transitions, before all of them, God was. And since God is eternal, Moses can say, as he does in verse 1, that he can and continue forever to be our dwelling place. The eternal God is our one safe home. He is our one safe harbor. The true habitation for his time-enslaved creatures. Because that's what you and I are right now. Time-enslaved creatures. So this is a psalm that has an eternal focus. And so, because of the focus on the eternal, one can see that this most ancient of poems, almost most ancient of poems, this one of the most ancient hymns, is shot through with what in theological terms is called eschatology. This ancient poem is focused on the end. It is focused on last things, final things. Because children of God are drawn by and into a God who is from everlasting to everlasting. God's people 
They are pulled into a being of love who is not constrained by time. But that is impossible for us to get our brains wrapped around that. That we are being pulled into a being who is not bound by time. A.W. Tozer, you might be familiar with that name, A.W. Tozer, the great American pastor, he writes of this phenomenon, the fact that God is not bound by time, and he says this, The mind looks backwards in time till the dim past vanishes, then turns and looks backwards into the future till thought and imagination collapse from exhaustion. And God is at both points, unaffected by either. That's a beautiful way of trying to get your head wrapped around. But even that doesn't do it justice. God is unaffected by time. And if there is one thing that Moses obsesses over in this psalm, it's the idea of time. Moses hits on the concept of days, years, or time 20 different times in this psalm. 17 verses, 20 times, Moses is talking about time. And all of this time infatuation he sets against the backdrop of a God who is outside of time. A God who for, from before time, from all eternity, he existed in an eternal, perfect community of mutual indwelling, tri-personal, eternal love. That's the God that Moses sets this condition of man against. And in his love, what was God doing? God was not cold and remote in his love before the foundations of the world. We know from scripture that he was making a plan. God, even before the foundations of the world, God is not remote from it. He was making a plan to bring us into his love. That's all of scripture right there, right? God makes a plan to bring you into his love. That's it. That's what's going on. We know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Where Paul writes, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In pure love, the eternal son now incarnate, he prays in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prays for the eternal, timeless plan that he had covenanted with the Father. He prays in John 17 for that plan to finally be set in motion. Let's get the wheel turning on it. Let's get it moving. Put it into motion. Let's go. The plan that he had covenanted with the Father through the Spirit from all eternity. This is what Jesus prays in that prayer. I pray for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. You see, this God, this trying God, this God has been Moses' and Israel's dwelling place for all generations. And this God has a plan. And it is a well-crafted, a very beautiful plan indeed. And why is the plan so beautiful? Well, of course it's beautiful because God made it. But in light of what Moses is saying, why is this plan so beautiful? It's a plan that is fully unhindered by a deadline. 
Like, what was our plans, right? Your vacations, right? There's always, even you get away on your vacation weekend, there's always stuff lingering over, right? It's ending shortly. You've got to rush to get this. Oh, we don't do this today. we got to go back, right? He, all right, well, when I get to retirement, then you look at your retirement, and I thought, what do I got? 20 years left? Right? So it's 40 years. What if it, maybe if you work for the state, maybe you got a little bit more time or something like that. But you look at the, at the time running out, right? So all of your plans that you have, they are always having deadline lingering over them. God's plan is conceived, it's birthed from all eternity. And because of this, there is a beauty to it. There's a beauty to his plan that time-restrained plans have no access to. There's a tranquility and a peace to his plan that human beings have no access to. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he talks about predestination and election, it's always the source of peace for him. We get worried about these things. Paul says they bring peace because it's a plan that has been enacted for all eternity. There's no deadline to it. It's a plan that by pure mercy we are graciously made part of. So Moses' insistence in Psalm 90, in this psalm, on the transitory nature of man, it's not here because Moses wants to bemoan our position, but he wants to beseech the mercy of God. God whose plans Moses knows are greater than our plans. Right? It's only in light of verse 1 and verse 2 and God's eternality that our impermanence, that our blip of a life could be properly understood. Now if we keep our eyes focused below, we can fall into the habit of thinking that we have a lot more time. We can deceive ourselves. It seems like every day when I go to check my mail, I go to Yahoo News, I think I'm one of the four or five people left still using Yahoo the other three guys are great. We get together once a year for a beer in there. When you go to Yahoo News, I assume this is the same for everybody else, you know, that are updated in the modern world and use Gmail or whatever else you use. But you go to these websites to check your mail, and every other day it seems like they're running some story about the oldest person in the world. Here's an interesting right, story all the time. The oldest person in the world is 114 years old or 117 years old. We like to hear these stories, right? Because as long as the mental equation that we do, that quick you stop, wait, 114, 35, 79. As long as that mental equation gives us a large enough sum at the end, then we don't have to number our days. At least not for a while. We can push that equation off. Right? We're really good at deceiving ourselves. Tricking ourselves. Keeping ourselves from numbering our days. I'm convinced that that is the number one factor behind diet culture. Especially these fly-by-night quick diet fads, like, lose all this weight in three days, doing nothing. Right? If I stay away from those, oh, I stay away from those foods, those are the real killers. If I avoid those foods, then you know what? I won't have to number my days. At least not now. I can do it much, much further down the road. But do you know what sin is? Sin is not numbering your days. That's almost the root of sin, not numbering our days. If you realize and believe truly that you would have to give an account for what you've done. That God is real. But you act the way that you do. Well, we, we don't really believe it, right? So at, at the root, what is sin? It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of faith that God is actually going to judge us. Right? Faith, the very conduit by which we receive the grace that our eternity rests upon. Right? All sin is a lack of faith. It is a failure to number our days. All sin, at some level, involves a lack of faith. 
Yet God has lavished grace upon us, creatures who lack this faith. So in our song, Moses starts with God and his eternality, and then he shifts to man, which is the only really logical way to conduct any sort of anthropological work. Right? Start with God and move to man. If you start with man first and then try to move to God, you end up in all sorts of weird things. Same thing when it comes to apologetics, right? Start with God, move to man. Don't start with man and move to God. And when you do that mental calculus, it's a little bit different than the mental calculus you get when you do the Yahoo News story about the oldest man alive. Here's the mental calculus. God's eternality minus my wispy ephemeral existence. And that gets the equation, oh hey, I better set my sights on things eternal. I better start numbering my days. Moses wants our eyes fixed on eternity, on our eschatological hope, on our eschatological life, because that's where God wants our focus. He doesn't want our focus solely on things below. After all, there was this very famous man who once said these words, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's quite clear that this ancient poem is an eschatological poem. Which means all the scripture is eschatological. It's always pointing us towards the end, towards last things. That's what it's all about. From start to finish. It's not like the Bible starts off here with some lower level things and eventually there's a chapter over here in Thessalonians and 2 Peter 3 where they talk about the, uh, about eschatology. No, it's all eschatology from the very beginning, from the start, in this most ancient of poems. And this isn't me theologizing about this song. I know a friend of mine, if you ever heard this sermon, a friend of our church, would say, oh, don't you push this eschatology stuff in there? You're theologizing into the text. Let me assure you, I'm not theologizing this concept back into the text. And the way that I would tell that friend that, and the way that I would assure you that I'm not doing that, is the fact that this is not pure conjecture on my part. But we hear these exact words, Psalm 90, we hear them repeated in the New Testament. And we hear them repeated in the New Testament from Peter in 2 Peter 3, in the midst of Peter trying to convince his people to be prepared for the end. The end that is coming like a thief in the night. You cannot be prepared for it. He's all about eschatology there. Nobody's worried about that. 2 Peter 3. And what is 2 Peter 3? Well, what does Peter use in 2 Peter 3 to try to drive home that point? He wants to use Psalm 90. He says in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, so be ready. So here's where we stand. This is the situation. We are on the razor-thin edge of a cliff that has a precipitous drop-off if there ever was one. Man is finite. We don't number our days. We lack perspective. And we are being swept up as if in a flood. And that river that is sweeping us up is bringing us towards a big puddle of death. That's the condition that Moses sets out for us. And if that news isn't bad enough, Moses goes even further. He tells us that what awaits us at the end of that tributary, at the end of that river, is not just death. But he says there is a God waiting for us there who is angry at us. Look at verse 7 and verse 8 of our text. They read, 
but we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So we fail, our lives are cut short, they are cut off by God's righteous, just anger, because our sins are set before him. Think of that for a minute. Our finite sins are not finite because they sit before the one who is infinite. That is a horrifying picture. Maybe the most horrifying biblical truth. You see, for you, your sins are quickly forgotten. As you move on down the stream of life, I, I do this experiment oftentimes with my students in my, uh, in my, in my class on uh, medieval uh, Christianity. I teach about St. Augustine. And Augustine in his confessions, right, he lays out all these sins in painstaking detail. And you're like, oh, that's too personal. Don't do that. And I was like, you know, do something real quick. I tell him, I say, take out a sheet of paper and write down for me all the sins you've committed that you can remember. Don't hand it to me. I don't want to read it. Don't put your name on it. Then destroy it. Throw it away. And I give him time. I say, how much time do we have? I say, five minutes. They write for a few minutes and they laugh. They get three or four things in it. These are college kids. 19, 20 years old. They can't think of more than three or four sins they've committed in their whole lives. Right? We have this remarkable ability. Our sins are finite for us, right? We move on from them. They fade into the distance for us. For you, they pass by quickly. But before God, there is not a flowing river of, of, of movement of time. But before God sits a stagnant sea, a perpetual now. God's outside of time. He's in a perpetual now. And your secret sins, which have moved into the dark recesses of your memory, and they've almost faded into non-existence for you, those sins, Moses tells us, are set in the light of God's holy presence. They're not just kind of there, they're illuminated by his presence, where he can see all the contours and distortions of our wicked lives, of our contorted, mangled desires of our failure to put him first. That is the dire position that we are in right now. And we are in much of a need of a solution. Which brings us to our second point. Much shorter point, I promise. Second point, the solution. The solution comes in our text in verse 12. So Moses has laid out a dire situation for us, and now he's going to give us a solution in verse 12. He says, so teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So numbering our days, Moses tells us, brings wisdom. Because those who fear the Lord, they number their days. And we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Numbering our days, you know what it does for us? It sets our horizon in its proper place. Right? It sets our horizon right out there where we can see it, where we can properly orient our lives. But if you don't have your eyes fixed on the proper horizon, the true horizon, the inevitability of your death, it's impossible to run the race straight, to attain the goal, to achieve the prize, all those different athletic metaphors that Paul loves so much. Right? You can't do that unless you have your eyes fixed on the right goal, or on the right end, at least. God needs to teach us, Moses says, so that we can have a heart of wisdom. And then notice in the text, having gained a heart of wisdom, what does wisdom ask for? The man who has numbered his days, the man who has gained wisdom, what is his very first move? 
just continue to the next verse of the text. Wisdom then immediately calls and cries out for the return of the Lord. The return for the presence of God. Verse 13 reads, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. And those that number their days quickly realize that this place we are in right now, just like it's Moses' people, this place right now is the wilderness. Just as Moses' people were wandering, this right now is not Canaan. This is not the land flowing with milk and honey. But what do we long for? As the author of Hebrews tells us over and over again. We long for Mount Zion. We long for the heavenly Jerusalem. In all of its fullness. Because having numbered our days, what do we quickly realize? We don't have enough of that. And we were made for eternity. There's sadness when we number our days. Right? It doesn't matter, right? You go to a funeral, it doesn't matter what age the person was when they died. There's never anyone that says, you know, I've had plenty of time. That, that's, that's what lots of kids say when their parents die. Right? They say, yeah, I'm just, you know, I got it for now. That's fine. Now, we quickly realize when we number our days that we were made for eternity. But we should notice here, Moses. Moses is not an escapist. The psalmist here in Psalm 90, he doesn't say, well, I was made so eternity. I was made for eternity. So until Christ returns, you know what I'm going to do? Just stare into the heavens and wait for him. I'm going to do nothing else but stare and wait for Christ. Because that's what I was made for. I was made for eternity. Man was made for eternity. But did not create, or did not God create a temporal world, a physical world, and then say it is good? Did not God grant man with skills and abilities, with free will? Did not God impress his very image on this strange creature called man and then entrust him with work to do? He certainly did. So notice what Moses does ending this psalm. A psalm that is pointed towards our, hey, we're frail, we're fading, focus on things eternal. And then he ends the psalm this strange way, verse 16 and 17. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses, having fully taken account of man's condition, of his finitude, which precludes us, it precludes you and I from establishing the works of our hands. He cries out to God, asking that the Lord would show his servants a way that his works could be established. Lord, let your work and power be shown to us. Let your favor be upon us so that our labor is not in vain. See, mankind was made not only to work, but we were not made to work in a menial, slave-like way. We were made to work with a purpose, towards an end, towards a goal, towards something that is lasting. I'm sure some of you have heard the stories um, of Dostoevsky that he tells of his times in the Soviet death camps. And there's these remarkable accounts. He tells these accounts of these Russian people who are enslaved by the Soviets in the death camps, and they were all given tasks, jobs to do. Some of them were forced to build railroads for the Soviets. Right? And these people, even though their work was forced, it was labor made to do that might serve some nefarious purpose. Right? They said, hey, their work still had some sort of meaning. 
right? Build railroad from A to B, right? There was still some end to the work. They could see something that they had done with their hands. That was one work that people were given to do. But there were others in these death camps. They were given a different job to do. Dostoevsky recalls that there was prisoners who were forced to take these big rocks and carry them from one pile in the yard in the slave camp to the other side. They build move one big pile of rocks to the other end. And then the next day they wake up and they take those rocks and have to move them right back to the original spot. And then the next day, move them back. He says that those people doing that work committed suicide at an alarming rate. Their labor was completely devoid of meaning. And man cannot live in the face of meaninglessness. We are creatures that have built into the very psychological fabric of our being a need for some meaning, for some sort of permanence, because we are finite. Only the things that we do in and through Christ will have permanence, will pass that purgation by fire. Only those works will last. So only those works can give you any true meaning in this life. So this psalm actually concludes in a quite joyful note. Yes, life is short. Yes, it is fleeting. But God is not. And you are his. He is the God in whom you live and move and have your being. You are right now, as we know in scripture, united to Christ. It is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. Now think about those words, right? You hear them all the time, Galatians 2. Right? That's not just a throwaway line from Galatians chapter 2, right? That it is no longer you who lives, but Christ who lives in you. It's not a throwaway line, it's actually probably the central theme, the most hit upon idea in the entire New Testament. The Apostle Paul uses that phrase, in Christ, or one akin to it, over 170 times in the New Testament. Over 170 times, the Apostle Paul wants to you right now are in Christ. You are in Christ right now. The eternal one. The God of God, the light of light, the very God of very God. And because of that, those things that you do right now to magnify the Father, your works of mercy and charity, your labors of faith and hope and love, your feeding the hungry, hugging the broken, feasting with the other saints, those works will be established by the mighty hand of God. So I challenge you to lift up your voice and praise him because those songs, scripture tells us, will be established. Lift up your hearts to pray to him because your prayers are cemented by the bonds of world-creating love. Blessed are you when you mourn for the martyr because your pleas, they have more permanence than the mountains. The mountains will pass away, your pleas for the martyrs will not. Blessed are those who have counted their days who have developed a meek spirit, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who pursue peace and tranquility, for they will be established beside streams of living water. Waters that do not sweep us away like a flood, but waters that scripture tells us will end up joining in with us in a cosmic cacophony of firmly established praise. All of created order will worship God. The waters will join you in praise of the one who is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The praise of the God of the prophets and the apostles and the martyrs. Praise of the God of our church fathers and your biological fathers. Praise of the God of your children and your children's children. 
all creation will join in the everlasting, established praise of the one who from everlasting to everlasting is God. Amen.